Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. We're in a sermon series called God Is. In this series, we're learning who God is and how he wants to relate to us. Thanks for joining us. My name's Chuck, for those who don't know me, and I'm, uh, I'm just excited to be together. So good to hear from the Dieselbergs. So good to be together and to, to worship and to sing. I need that week in and week out to be gathered with God's people. And I'm excited to dig into the Word. So I'm going to jump right in. Uh, some quick uh, just background here, like where have we been in the church? If you haven't been here uh, or you're here for the first time, we've been in a series called uh, Our God Is. And we've been looking at the names of God and stories in the Bible, kind of all over the Bible, because we wanted to see not just who God is, we don't want to learn who he is, but how he wants to relate to us. So today, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 15. So if you brought a Bible, you can take that out. You can turn to Exodus chapter 15. It's verse 22 through 27. If you didn't bring a Bible, it's no problem at all. Uh, there's Bibles in the seatbacks in front of you on the racks. Love it if you pull one of those out. I think the page number is up on the screen. We're just learning how to be first-handers with the, the Word of God. So we'll be looking at our God as healer this morning. Healer, Jehovah Rapha, the scripture says. And you can even look there on your message notes at the passage. 1526, it says, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am Jehovah Rapha. I am the Lord who heals you. So I just want to start with a question. What comes to your mind when you hear the word healer? Or healing? Of course, we're not shouting those out, but I just wonder, what comes into your, into your head? I um, asked my wife, Lisa, that this week. She said, I think of my dad's knee surgery. He had knee surgery earlier this week. I think of that being healed. Later in this week, as we went through our week, I, I, I thought of my, my son and some feedback that he received uh, about his eyes that we didn't see coming, his eyesight. I thought, man, that's what I'm thinking about. I know, I know some of you come in here today, you're in the darkest of valleys, and the word healing for you, it might be the difference between life and death. I know others come in this morning, they might be on the mountaintop, they've just got great news, and the word healing is excitement. Maybe you think about the medical profession, Maybe you think about miracles. Maybe you've got questions, like what's the deal with healing? Can it happen here? Did you know Jesus came on the scene healing? He healed a blind man, restored his sight. He healed a lame beggar. He cured mental illness. And he spoke in ways that filled people deep in their soul. He brought wholeness everywhere he went, wholeness. That's the way things are supposed to be, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Wholeness. He came proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing diseases in every affliction, Matthew 9. And I want to put this quote 
on the screen from Timothy Keller. I think it's helpful for us today. Let me just read it. Keller says, we modern people, that's what we are, modern, or mods. We modern people, we think of miracles as the suspension of the natural order. But Jesus, he meant them to be the restoration of the natural order. The Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease, hunger, and death in it. Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. The suspension of the natural order, the restoration of the natural order, two different ways to look at it. The suspension of the natural order, the restoration of the natural order. And let me tell you why I need this message today. Even after this week, even after digging into the scriptures, the Lord has been speaking to me things I needed to hear. I need this message because I need faith to see the natural order the way things are supposed to be, the natural order as whole, healed, and very good. And I need eyes to see that the decay and the disease and the death around me is a symptom of abnormality. The temporary, the light, the momentary compared with the coming glory and goodness that awaits us. Anybody else need eyes to see that? I need eyes to see that. Day in and day out. You think if we asked him, he'd give us eyes. I think that's why he gave us prayer. What a gift it is. Why don't we turn to him in prayer and let's ask him, Lord, we are privileged to be in your presence this morning and in each other's. Thank you for your word. As we look at Exodus 15, through 27 this morning, would you ignite in our hearts a flame of hope won't you do that and give us eyes to see this world as temporary in light of all that lies before us. Give us faith. Give us faith, Lord, to call upon your name as Jehovah Rapha, healer, and give us faith to do it expectantly. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Here's what I want to do. I want to start by looking at the Exodus. Because as you saw in our passage, it refers to the Egyptians. So we've got to go back. We got no choice. So I want to look at the Exodus and Egypt coming, or excuse me, the Israelites coming up out of Egypt. And then I want to look at the journey they're on after they come out. Okay? And then I want to put that all together. Three sections. You with me? So I want to start with this line on your notes, the first line. And this is a lens I want us to look at the scriptures through. It's not the only lens. It's a lens. It's been really helpful to me as I've studied the Old Testament. So here's the lens. The physical and material in the Old Testament often point to the spiritual and eternal in the New Testament. The physical and material in the Old Testament often point to the spiritual and eternal in the New Testament. Like, what do you mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. Today we're going to look at a physical people. Like, they're real, and they were in a physical place that was real, and they walked the ground that was material through a Red Sea that was physical and material out of slavery into another physical place. And I'm going to suggest to you that perhaps this points to a spiritual people, kingdom of priests, family of God, who are in bondage to a spiritual slavery, sin, and idolatry that walk out of 
that bondage into their calling and who they are supposed to be. Make sense? Yeah. So I want to start by uh, looking at the book of Exodus, and we're going to do a quick overview. We're going to do a little Sunday school in church. Is that okay? Everybody say, that's okay. Everybody say, that's okay. Great. That's good. All right. So we're going to look at Exodus 1 through 15. Sunday school and church. Whiteboards are like my dream. If I could have whiteboards everywhere, it'd be awesome. Okay, so chapter 1 to 15. So we've got 1, and we've got 15, okay? And what the author of Exodus wants to show us in chapter 1, you can even flip there in your Bible if you want, you don't have to, but he wants to show us that the main character in chapter 1 is Pharaoh, okay? Yahweh is not even on the scene. He didn't show up until chapter 3. You guys remember that story? Chapter 3? Anybody know what it was? So God reveals himself to who? To Moses, right? Moses and the burning bush. So the Israelites, they don't even know their God in chapter 1. They haven't met him yet. God's got to reveal himself to Moses. So we got Yahweh down here. And what the author wants to show us through this book at least the first 15 chapters, is a contest between Pharaoh and Yahweh. And he wants to show us through these chapters the diminishing of Pharaoh and the exaltation of Yahweh. So the book of Exodus starts with Pharaoh as the main character. There arose a new king over Egypt, chapter 1. And then in 15.1, if you flipped all the way there, we see, I will sing to the Lord Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously, right? Pharaoh's horse and chariot he has thrown into the sea. Now, what do we know about the way of Pharaoh? Because these just aren't, you know, two like individuals. These are ways. They represent ways. Let's just look at the text. So the text says, this is Pharaoh speaking he says, behold, behold, the people of Israel, they're too many. Pharaoh's speaking. He says, the people, they're too many. They're too mighty for us. They're too big. They're going to take what we have. We must deal shrewdly with them. And the more the Israelites grew, the more the Egyptians feared them. And they made them taskmasters. They made them heavy burdens. They began to dread them. They made them slaves. They made their lives bitter, and they oppressed, and they oppressed, and they oppressed now, Walter Brueggemann has been so helpful to me in this and helpful in my walk and in my faith. And he says this. He says, you can look for Pharaoh. He's an Old Testament scholar, Walter Brueggemann. He says, you can look for Pharaoh throughout history and you will find him. When you have a monopoly and you think you don't have enough, it always ends in violence. You find him. And this is exactly what happens. Pharaoh commands every male son born to the Hebrews shall be cast into the Nile. Murder. What do we know about Pharaoh? What do we know about his way? I'd say it's pretty fearful, wouldn't you say? It's fearful. Scarcity mentality. Lack of trust, wants to control, anxiety, 
know about Yahweh? Chapter six. We're getting there, guys. What do we know about Yahweh? Chapter six says, Yahweh speaks. He says, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Deliverer. Healer. Heart for those who are oppressed. Redeemer. And we move into this section. Has anybody ever got here from 7 to, you know, 11, 12? We got these crazy plagues. Like, what's going on with the plagues? Like, what's the deal? Somebody help me with this. And really, all this is is a continuation of the contest between Pharaoh and Yahweh. Anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything. Yeah? So we get these plagues. Bible trivia here. Sunday school. Come on. Who knows the first plague? Shout it out. Nice. I like it. Water to blood. That's right. And so can Pharaoh's magicians, or let's rather call them his scientists, because this is about technological advancement. This is about progression. That's what it's representing. So let's say, can Pharaoh's scientists or magicians, can, can they do the water to blood? Do you know? Yes, they can. They can. What's the second one? Second plague? Frogs. And can Pharaoh's scientists do the frogs? Yes, he can. What's the third one? Gnats. <laughs> Gnats. And this, guys, this is the turning point. 8.16 of the story. Pharaoh's scientists can't make gnats. And it's like the author of the story is saying, round three. I mean, should, should he even thought he could compete anyway? Can Pharaoh even compete anyway? But we don't do that, do we? We don't think we, we know better than God. I mean, it's just revealing so much to us. But round three, Pharaoh taps out. Egypt's like, we tap out. We can't make gnats. We don't know how to do that. God can make gnats. He's the great gnat maker, huh? So you go to lunch today, you can say, God's a gnat making God. That's my God. <laughs> but Pharaoh's control meets its limit, and the story turns. They can't make gnats. They can't make security. They can't make joy. Their power, their wealth, their wisdom does not make them happier, does not make them safer. That's a great place for an amen <laughs> and a humbling word for me. When we trust in this, we'll be disappointed every time. That's the story of the Exodus. So we see the plagues get worse and worse and worse, as the author of Exodus shows us the increasing terrible results of the way of Pharaoh, idolatry, from minimal destruction to massive destruction, hail, locusts, livestock, the eventual, eventual loss of light, and then death, the death of every Egyptian firstborn son, the full reversal of the murder that Pharaoh planned from the beginning. And the oppressed Israelites, helpless, seemingly hopeless, they go free, but not by their own doing, right? Protected by the blood of a lamb and by the strong arm 
of the Lord. Gosh, that sounds like a similar story. Physical material, spiritual and eternal. Let's pick Colossians 1, 13 up on the screen. He has delivered us, Yahweh, the Christ, from the domain of darkness, from the slavery, and he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, praise his name, and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And I just want to hit the pause button right here for just a second. I don't know if you're here today, in a room this size, there has to be, and you're just struggling with faith. And you got questions about the Old Testament. I just want to say, welcome to the club, <laughs> you know, because there are questions that we need to ask. And the text begs us to ask questions. And let me just say humbly, I, I might not even have everything right here. You might push back on some of it. But I would ask you to wrestle with the text and see what the text says. Here's one thing I believe to my core. Every passage in the Old Testament is pointing to one person. And God give us eyes to see that the center of Scripture is Yeshua, Emmanuel, Jesus the Christ, the better Moses, the great I am, who we sang about this morning, the bread of life. And he would lead a revolution that contrasted with Caesar, the Roman government, in the same way that Pharaoh contrasted with Yahweh. He would forsake power. He would forsake wealth, choosing instead to walk among the sick and the oppressed. And he would die a criminal's death, the Passover lamb of God. And by his stripes, we are healed. Jehovah Rapha. So if you're here today, and you feel God revealing himself to you in your heart, he says, when I am high and lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. If he is drawing you to him, don't harden your heart. Let me plead with you. Don't harden your heart. Talk to someone about it. Talk to me afterwards. Talk to one of the people that are down here. You don't have to have your questions answered, but he is the hope of the world, the light of the world, and he's the way. And that's what he does. He draws people to him. That's how it happened to me. When I was 19, 20, 21, I thought, dang, that stuff is true. That's <laughs> what so I did. He's drawing me to him. And he's continued to draw me ever since. That's the Exodus. That's the story of the Exodus. We good? That makes sense? Okay. So we're moving to section two. Because, as a good friend of mine says, God didn't just come to acquit us. Right? He came to adopt us. He didn't just come to save us. He came to sanctify us. He came to sanctify us, not just to free us, but to form us. And so we're going to move from freedom to formation. We're going to move from the Exodus story to the journey of sanctification. And we love freedom, don't we? We love freedom. Freedom, freedom, freedom. <laughs> formation, like formation, like how long is that going to take? Because I got like two hours tomorrow. <laughs> can, can we get together? Formation. And we're like, ah, I think I'll go back to Egypt. Isn't that us? I think I'll go back to Egypt. I want to keep the old liturgy, but I want to have the new life. That's us. That's us. Whenever we leave a liturgy, we want to go back. That's what the scripture shows us. Whenever, whenever we leave one, we want to go back. 
But the Lord wants to teach us a new liturgy because you can't put new wine into old wineskins. That does not work. He has things for us. He has plans that he has prepared beforehand, but he has to teach us a new way to be, a new liturgy, a new way of representing the family. Yes? In the Bosworth household, we got rules. <laughs> be respectful, and we tell the truth, and we don't, we don't whine. And we say, when we go out into the world, we represent the Bosworth family. That's who we represent. It's the same here. In the family of God, we live this way. We represent the king. We represent the king. And the Lord knows this principle, this principle that what you believe deeply, you embody daily. So if you want to know what you believe, just look at how you walk it out. Look at how you walk it out. That's what you believe deeply. The Lord knows this. And so he wants to take us on a journey because he knows as we walk it out, as we practice the new liturgy, we're products of the enlightenment. And we, we think so much, you know, Rene Descartes, you know, I think, therefore I am. So we think, we think, and then we can do. That is not true all the time, is it? Can I get an amen there? I mean, just think of food. Like, has anyone ever done Whole30, where you eat like the 30 most bland things for what feels like 30 years? Somebody help me. <laughs> and I'm like, in this liturgy, I'm like, I want to go back. Because whenever you leave a liturgy, you want to go back. The Lord knows that's true. And so he's going to take us on a journey. He wants to take us on a journey from Egypt to the promised land. He wants us to walk in it. He wants us to walk in it. It's one thing for God to get his kids out of Egypt, but how do you get Egypt out of your kids? So Moses, the text says, and we're in our text now, verse 22, if you want to follow along. Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. He led them along the way. Stop one, stop two, stop three, stop four, stop five. That's our stop. That's where we're at today. And it says that after stop four, they came out. It's a wilderness. They came into the wilderness. And they're walking out of Egypt. And they're looking. And they're walking. And you remember what it says in Exodus 3? It says, let my people go so they can worship me. So they're walking. Three days. Three days, the text says. And they're looking around. They say, three days walking into the wilderness. This is like not what we thought it was going to be. <laughs> Like, we, we didn't think it was going to be this way with worship. Three days they travel in the desert. Barrenness. There's no water. Day one, they're thirsty. Day two, no water. They're parched. Day three, no water. They're panicking. And they come up over a ridge and over a horizon. They look out and they see an oasis. They see water. Three days, no water. And they're running. They're running for that water, and they jump in, and they start guzzling it. They start drinking it. Bitter. Undrinkable. Undrinkable. And isn't that just how it is sometimes in life? It's not looking good. It's looking worse. It's looking worse. It's getting worse. Wait, wait. No, I see something on the horizon. That's going to be it. And I run to it, and it's worse than it was in the first place. Why? It's worse.
Three days in the wilderness, they find no water. They come to Marah. They could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. This is why the place is called Marah. Three times in the text, Marah, Marah, Marah. Bitter, bitter, bitter. Three times the story is told in three successive chapters. 1524, the people grumbled against Moses. What shall we drink? What shall we drink? We want to go back. 162, the whole congregation grumbled against Moses. We want to go back. There's no food. What did you let us go back to Egypt? 173, they grumbled against Moses. We want to go back. There's nothing to drink. We want to go back. Would you bring us out here to die? Three times. Day one, day two, day three. Bitter, bitter, bitter. Mara, Mara, Mara. We want to go back. We want to go back. We want to go back. We want to go back to fear. We want to go back to scarcity mentality. We were just praising, but now we're panicking. We're grasping. We want to go back to acquiring and controlling. We feel it. We feel it. We want to go back. We didn't know it was going to be this hard. We didn't know it was going to be this way. And some of you, some of you in this room today, some dear friends of mine that I have the privilege of walking with, are walking through the bitterest of waters right now, the darkest of nights, and you're teaching me what it looks like to move forward boldly with trust and strength that only comes from the Lord. You're teaching me what it means to be formed into his image. You're teaching me. I stand on your shoulders. You're teaching me how to do that. And I just want to say this. Any representation of the gospel that has all resurrection and no cross is a slap in the face to Jesus Christ and the millions that suffer around the world. If you're following along in your notes, while traveling from Egypt to the promised land, we will stop at Mara. And so the people grumbled against Moses. They said, what are we to drink? What are we going to do now, Moses? What are we going to do now? There's no water. We have an entity for three days. And as a pastor, I've stood with people. They said, what are we going to do now? What are we going to do now? I said, I don't know. But my eyes are on him. And there's an important point here that I don't want us to miss. See, the people grumble against Moses. They do this in chapter 15 and chapter 16 and in chapter 17. But there is a big difference between grumbling and lamenting. There is a big difference in, oh, that the church of Christ would learn how to lament. There is a connection between health and lamenting. You see, grumbling, grumbling is without the Lord. Grumbling is without. It says at its root, I don't believe you'll come through for me. I know what's better. Anything you can do, I think I can do better. I need to control. And it never makes the turn. It says, you're not, you're not good. And it never makes the turn back to yet will I praise. But lamenting, lamenting, that's casting your anxieties upon the Lord. Lamenting is trusting him no matter the outcome. And I love this quote. I found it so helpful. 
Let me read it. It says, undergirding biblical lament is a relationship between the lamenter and his God that is close and deep enough for the protester to speak in imperatives, addressing God as you and reminding him of his covenantal promises. Did you get that? Reminding him of his covenantal promises, like, like uh, the Israelites sometimes say, you didn't keep your, the covenant. They say, you didn't, you didn't come through. You didn't do what you said you'd do. Is that true? No, he kept, his, he kept the covenant. He kept the promises. But see, even lies, they can, they, can, they can throw lies at him. And he can handle that. He's big enough for that. But they turn back. They say, yet will we praise you. It's not an act of unfaith. It's an act of deep faith. The lamenter feels the relationship is important enough to be vulnerable. Vulnerable. Lord, teach us how to pray and how to be vulnerable. Teach us how to take off the masks in this culture. Anyone can complain, and almost everyone does, but a follower of Christ can lament. And there's no question too big, there's no imperative too strong for the king of kings. So Moses cried out to the Lord that we would learn to cry out to the Lord like our leader, Jesus Christ, who said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? He cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He showed him a piece of wood. Could it represent the cross of Calvary? Maybe. Could it represent Moses' staff? You remember that? In the plagues? Used for a lot of this destruction, now reversed to make bitter water sweet? Maybe. Here's what I know. God showed up. God showed up. And they threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. The water became sweet, ESV. Bitterness to sweetness. A miracle. A miracle. There's nobody that's ever found out that you can throw some wood in a water and it fix the whole pond. It's, no one's ever figured that out. It's a miracle. What's a miracle? The restoration of the natural order. Lord, give us eyes to see. Jesus says in John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life. And so the Lord says then in the text, it says the Lord issued a ruling and an instruction. And we go into all these words, these words we've heard time and time again. If this and this and this and this and this, then this and this and this and this and this, right? You can look for that language all over. It comes back again, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. It's covenantal language, and we've talked about it before. But God is so good to do this. He's so good to meet the ancient Near East people where they are. When two parties come together in ancient Near East customs to form a partnership, they must form a treaty. They must do a covenant. And so they say, this and this and this and this and this on one side, and then here's the penalties if all this and this and this doesn't get done right on this side. And God does that because he wants to be with his people. He forms a covenant. So he issued a ruling and an instruction, which is what? He says, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God, if you do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands, if you keep his decrees, if you practice his ways and his liturgies, 
covenant language. So he, he issues the ruling and instruction for them, and then he puts them to the test. He puts them to the test. So what's that mean? Like, here's a test. See if you can handle that one. Here, handle that one. Hey, here's a test. Let's see how good you do there. No way. No way. I can't believe that that's what that is. And I looked up this word. I love what it means. Nisaw is the Hebrew. To venture. It's so good. To venture. To train. To give experience. To make an attempt. Isn't that the heart of our God? To make an attempt. Make an attempt. Walk it out. One step. And I'm with you. That's our God. He put them to the test. And he said, if you do all these things, then I will not bring on you any of the diseases, any of the destruction, any of the death that the way of Pharaoh brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. I am Jehovah Rapha. Another word for heals here is repairs. He repairs. Now why, guys, why? I ask myself this question. Why do they need to know him as Jehovah Rapha at this point in the journey? Why do they need to know him as healer? Five stops in. Why is that important? And I think it's because God knew that they're going to be tempted to believe the lie that the bitter waters meant he didn't care, he wasn't good enough, and there's no hope. He knew that the impression on us to turn back and to not trust was going to be so strong. So five stops into the journey, he reveals himself as Jehovah Rapha. He wanted his people to know that he is not the one who does not care. He is not the one who steals and destroys. He is not the thief. He is not the father of lies. He is the healer of nations. He's the one who's putting things back to right. And he's the giver of life and life abundant. He is healer. And so the last verse in the text. What a sight for sore eyes, right? Verse 27. Verse 27. Stop six. Elim. Stop six is Elim. They came to Elim, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Let's recap the story. But that's a picture of abundance, isn't it? That's what that is. 12 springs, 70 palm trees. It's a picture of abundant life. That's a glimpse of the future glory that's coming. And he gives that to us along the journey because he's good. So if we recap, recap where we've been. He, He revealed the way in the wilderness, right? He showed the piece of wood. To Moses, he did that. He represents the piece of wood. He restores the water to sweetness. He initiates the relationship with covenantal language. He reminds us that in this world, it's but the tip of the iceberg of eternity, and he readies our hearts for the coming feast of heaven with glimpses of glory along the journey. He's with, he's with, he's with, he's with, he's with, all around Mara. He's with, he's with. The way of Yahweh. In December of 06, there was an 18 year old girl by the name of Katie Davis. 
She traveled uh, to Uganda. Some of you may know her story. And my wife and I have read her two books. One of them, I think, is um, Kisses from Katie, and the other one is Daring to Hope. Man, have they impacted us. And so she traveled to Uganda. She knew she'd be back. And less than a year later, she came back to teach at an orphanage. It's been her home ever since. She's adopted 13 girls, and she started a ministry called Amazama, which means truth in the native language there. And I want to read just a bit from her book here. She says, a baby girl called me mommy for years, and then I had to give her up. I've had to look into a mother's face and tell her that her child was not going to live. I've stood by and held the hands of friends as they took their last breath far too young. I've had deep friendships with people imprisoned by addiction. I could not help them fight no matter how I tried. And I've walked alongside family members and friends who have wrestled too, who've been yanked down by the weight of their tears, who have sobbed, I didn't think it was gonna be this way. How long, oh Lord? And I've asked some really hard questions, she says. Is God really good? Does he really see me? And how does he love us in all this mess? But the frail frame of my faith has been wrenched away and replaced with a deeper understanding that has marked me for life. I would see God in the wrestling. God wasn't promising me ease. He wasn't promising me that things would go as planned. He wasn't promising a world without trouble, without heartbreak along the way. He was promising me himself. And so she goes on and says, instead of practicing the positivity I practiced and calling it faith, and instead of demanding the thing I wanted and labeling it belief, I've simply begun expecting God to show up. And I say, come on, Katie. Whether he shows up in the way I think he should, or he shows up in the way I think he shouldn't, he shows up again and again and again with, with, with. So if you're following along in your notes, would you dare to believe? Would you dare to believe that he's Jehovah Rapha? Because that takes some daring. And we embody daily what we believe deeply, don't we? So would you walk it out? And sometimes we can't do anything else but just be where we're at. And I don't know what it looks like for you to walk it out, but I believe God would share that and reveal today. That's why I've left that space at the end. So I want to give us just a minute to be still. And maybe we can put down our notes and our Bibles and we can just sit. It's the practice I do every moment. This is part of walking it out for me. This is a new liturgy that I practice. And I want us to sit with our feet on the floor and we can open our palms up. Maybe it helps us to close our eyes. Let us be still before the Lord. We want to dare to believe, Lord.
What do you want us to know? Across the ticker of our minds. And even as you're sitting there, I feel led to share this today, and I don't know why, but I, there's something about embodying our faith that is so important. I just want to ask you, it may not relate to you, and if it doesn't, that's fine. But when is the last time that you praised God with your body? <laughs> that you jumped for God? that you were on your knees before God, that you raised your hands to God, that you called out to God, that you sang to him outside of church, that you ran for him. that we get to do every week and it's just another way of living in a new liturgy another way of walking it out in God's family we sing it's just what we do thanks for joining us today if you would like more information or to stay connected to Cherry Hills Church please visit our website at cherryhillsfamily.org or follow us on Facebook